our scripture today is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and rust and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's good to be with you. I, before I attempt to talk about God and money and do that in a very short time this morning, um, this is just my own reflection. Uh, having some time over Christmas uh, and you're uh, maybe seeing other people, other family, uh, for me, the conversation often comes up to say, oh, you know, Dave, how is stuff with that church or St. Clair? And, and I just realized, well, I didn't realize, I reminded myself again of how thankful I am to be part of this community. I just want you to know that I brag about you often to others, and it's very humbling to serve within this community. So uh, if I don't say it enough, I just want to say thank you. It's good to be part of this. Um, it's humbling for me to be able to preach and hopefully just be faithful to saying to us what I think God wants to say. And sometimes after I preach, I don't always know whether it's good or not. Uh, and I go, and I, I, I share this just because I thought it was funny. Uh, last, last time I preached, I went and sat down. I just leaned over to my wife, Jen, and I just said, Jen, was it okay? And she looked at me, and she's like, oh, you should have seen yourself. I was like, whoa, okay. And then she goes on to explain, it was so amazing. Your shirt exactly matches the carpet. And the whole time, it just looked like you're a floating head up there. It was amazing. (laughs) So that is the comfort that I receive when I leave this stage. <laughs> okay, I need to focus myself. <laughs> we, we are talking Sermon on the Mount. The trajectory of this whole year has been asking ourselves the question as a community, how do we live the way of Jesus in Hamilton? The question was 2019, now we're asking it given a new year and a new decade. And we went through the story of God's people in the Old Testament, and now we're landing ourselves in Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. If you weren't with us last week, then I'd encourage you to listen online with our podcast to Matt's teaching. It was really good on talking about the Beatitudes, and it kind of gave a framework for how to understand this thing of the Sermon on the Mount Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. I, I think this is actually really important for how we engage over the coming weeks. These what can seem on surface level to be like very hard, difficult, complex teachings. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is the word of the one 
who did not relate to reality as a foreigner, as a reformer, as a fanatic, the founder of a religion, but as the one who bore and experienced the nature of reality in his body, who spoke out of the depths of reality as no other human being on earth ever before. These are the words that we're holding on to with the Sermon on the Mount. I hope we can do good work to see that what Jesus is talking about is a flourishing, thriving life, that he is talking about what it is to be in the kingdom, to find the narrow path that leads to life. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. So as it was read for us, this is the part in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about storing up treasures in heaven, and he is very very, very explicit about money in our life. And so I just have to go this morning to talk about money, but it isn't much of a stretch to do that because if you've read anything of the Bible, you don't have to go very far to know the Bible talks a lot about money. The Old Testament is full of these instructions for God's people that have an economic reality to how his people are to mirror and image his presence and his character in the world, and that means something for the finances of God's people. I'm going to run through some verses here in Scripture that are New Testament-specific that might help uh, broaden the words that Jesus has for us on Sermon on the Mount. 1 Timothy 6, 7-10 says, For we brought nothing into the world... And we take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Happy Sunday morning. (laughs) For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Let me repeat that again, because some of us may have heard this verse reference, and the thing that we hear or we assume is money is the root of all evil. I don't know if you've heard that before. That is not what this is saying. It says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's actually really important that we know the difference on that. Some people eager for money have wandered far from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. When Jesus is telling a parable about what is life, what life and faith is like in the kingdom and how some people grow up like a seed that's planted in the ground and why some people don't, when it came to the parable of the sower, of the seed, Jesus says, for the seed that is planted and grows up but does not bear fruit, this is why. Matthew 13 says, The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. These are Jesus' words in Luke 12, 15. Then he said to them, But watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. 
Hebrews 13, 5 to 6 says this. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So with confidence, so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And Luke 16, which is a retelling uh, in Luke's terms, the similar words that is offered in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. And this is, this is how Luke um, expands on it. He says, these are Jesus' words, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And if that wasn't enough, let me give you Chesterton, who feels the urgency of Jesus' words. He says, among the rich, you will never find a really generous man, even by accident. They may give their money away, but they will never give themselves away. They are egotistic, secretive, dry as old bones. To be smart enough to get all that money you must be dull enough to want it. <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't... Oh. That, that might actually be enough. I'm not sure if I have to say more. If, if we're actually doing honest work with God and what our lives look like and growing into maturity in the way of Jesus, then at some point we have to ask ourselves the question, how does how I spend my money reflect the image of God in my life and in this world? And this is, I think, a difficult one to talk about. It's, it's maybe awkward at worst, and it's, or it's, it's, it can be awkward, it can be devastating, it's, it can be a lot of things for us to talk about money. But if you're not sure, money actually really matters in God's eyes. Talking about money is critically important to our faith because where our treasure is, there also our heart will be. We fix our gaze on what we desire. And is there really anything else that is quite like money that would reveal our desires? What we look at we long for, and that deeply matters to Jesus, for the eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. 
But if your eyes are unhealthy, Jesus warns us what that means for us. The Christian response to money that I am most familiar with, this this would just be part of my upbringing and and sort of um, the culture that I've been within, is that it's really important to be wise with our money, which I actually don't think is wrong at all. I think I'd just like to propose that sometimes that can be misguided. Stewarding can maybe sometimes become code for how to manage your money well. How do I ensure control of what is mine when stewarding is actually really about being responsible with what is not ours? You see the the difference? I think there's a real and subtle danger in talking about savings that actually becomes our excuse for hoarding. We need to think shrewdly about our finances. And now I I'm, would actually be speaking to everyone on this. This isn't those of us who think we have money or think we don't have money. I think we actually all have the same choices and a lot of the same temptations in front of us to chase money as the thing that would satisfy whether we have a lot or a little. I think it's just stuff that we all have to give way to. Stanley Harwa says this is nothing enslaves more than that which we think we cannot live without. So when Jesus talks about you cannot be a slave to money and to God, and we look at our lives, which which one do we feel more panicked without? The sense of security that money brings or the sense of security that God brings? Which, which one, if you're to remove from the equation, causes panic for us? It's very difficult, I think, for us to talk about our lives and the world outside of the influence of money. And it, it actually just makes sense because it's the function of our society. It's very necessary for how things work. But at some point, I would propose the role of money in our life went from being the means to improve our life to actually becoming the goal itself in the pursuit of a good life. We live in a complex time where much of life, I think, just gets sort of seen or maybe blurred through economic terms. Uh, I mean... (laughs) This is, I could say a whole bunch about the, you know, the evils of multinational corporations, and, you know, but that would be uh, punching above my weight class. <laughs> what I hope to offer is a theological conviction that helps us know how to be participants in the world and reimagine the way of Jesus where we find ourselves right here and right now. I think when money rules the day, as, as I think it does in our current society. It means everything becomes about the bottom line. The motive is always profit. Good or bad, right or wrong, becomes secondary to enterprising and expanding. We are sold what is necessity 
Wants become disguised as needs. Convenience and comfort are confused as rights being owed. And names and faces become units and data. And I think the people that suffer most from this kind of mode of living are the poor, the elderly, refugees, First Nations people, those who are not seen as productive members of society, who the perception is that they are a drain on the system. They become expendable, forgotten, voiceless, even even despised. And so I think adhering to a system that values and praises you get what you deserve becomes dehumanizing to those who don't measure up by those terms. It's no wonder Jesus warns us of the love of money. Because I don't think this is the vision of flourishing that Jesus imagined for us, that the kingdom is imagining that another way is possible. Now, Jesus did not declare or come to sort of overthrow a whole system of sorts. Though it is curious, the one time he loses it and throws tables is with the misuse of money in the temple. It happens twice uh, in several gospel accounts. But Jesus is really, really clear. He doesn't denounce money. He calls into question our love of money. There are clear examples where Jesus is adhering to the system that he lives in by telling people to pay their taxes. And he miraculously provides for Peter to go pay taxes on his behalf and disciples' behalf. Jesus even goes even further. He tells a lot of parables describing the way of the kingdom and uses the investment of money as an illustration to liken what the life of a disciple should look like. Jesus, his issue is not money. But how do we live in a world and a system that can't see life outside of money as being the be-all and end-all of what we live for? Some of us may be like John the Baptist who stand outside the system and in a way prophetically expose where there's corruptness and brokenness. I, some days I dream about a tiny home off-grid, and it, it seems nice. But most of us, I think, however, are being asked to live the way of Jesus right here, right now, in the places where we find ourselves. And we just need to simply ask the question, how do we do that faithfully? What does it look like to live faithfully as people who love God and are not a slave to money? For all of us, at some point, we have to be honest that the call of Jesus is costly in every way, especially financially. Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount is a promise of freedom. It is showing us of living beyond the pressures of competition, efficiency, and productivity, and that we don't have to carry the unnecessary burden, the weight of more stuff. Clinging to possessions, at best, can only actually provide us a sense of security. Jesus is promising himself as security for our lives. 
being caught in a cycle of trying to earn our value is exhausting and it is an endless pursuit. The gospel is that our value has been bestowed on us as a gift, far greater and richer than anything we could ever attain to or aspire on our own. And the solution to many of the problems of society can't be this by the same means that exacerbated the problems in the first place. Our hope as the church is that Jesus is the one who holds all things together, and he's reconciling everything to himself. The kingdom of God deals in a different kind of currency. It's mercy. We don't work in the same terms that everything else does because I'm just not sure that it's working that well. There has to be a different hope for the church, a different hope for us as we follow Jesus because Jesus is the one that has the power to change hearts who can then reinvigorate a new way. Okay. Let me very simply offer uh, some things that could be of help from here because, uh, well, we need something (laughs) to work with because we're going back to normal lives. Have you familiar, have you read the book Blue Like Jazz? Is that, uh, I see a show of hands. I'm curious because this maybe dates me. Okay. So, so anyway, you know, 15 some odd years ago, it was a very popular book for young Christians who were angsty and sad. Uh, and it was, I loved it. It was great. It was, it was a hilarious book. And I had just to be at a conference uh, where Donald Miller was speaking. Uh, and, he, you know, at that time, he would have been a Christian hero for me of sorts. Uh, and there was a, a Q&A session, and some of what he was offering, I thought, oh, man, this is so good, but I think I've got a good question. And so when someone is roaming around with a microphone, I put my hand up, ready to ask, like, the, just I'm putting all my knowledge into two sentences to try and impress Donna Miller. And this is a total side note. I've got my hand up. Microphone's coming. And my buddy Mark uh, leans over to me. He's got a bottle of water. And he just goes, oops, and then starts dumping the whole thing on my lap. So so that when I stand up, I'm like, just wet. (laughs) So my big moment with Donald Miller is being spoiled before it's even started. And I asked Donald, I was like, the whole conversation was about how how do you talk about the gospel? How do you live the gospel? And I was like, well, how do you live the gospel? How do you contextualize the gospel? You know, if we're living in you know, an economic world, isn't it good to talk about the kingdom of God as like in financial terms? Like I was, I'm not even sure what I said, but I do remember his, spon- his response really clearly, and it was helpful. He said, oh, I think it's really good for us to always talk about how we know God and how we live in the world in relational terms. Like, oh, yeah, that. I think that helps us. And when, when I think about where do we go from here, that's even maybe a starting point is to think differently about people and about money. And that is to kind of use a different metric for how we talk about our lives and our world. Thinking about our day in terms of our productivity or effectiveness or efficiency means that we start to see people 
as a means to be used to our own end. Or perhaps people become inconveniences because it makes our lives less efficient. If our worth in the world has to be measured by what we produce, then we will always have to have a number to show for, or our lives become exhausting and hollow just trying to keep up. So what do I mean when I say think differently about people and money? It may just be to speak about our life in relational terms with one another, and that is to think not about you know, what we produce, but to think, did, ask ourselves the question, did I love well today? Did I put people before projects? Is my satisfaction coming from things that will last a really long time, i.e. forever? Or do I spend myself and my resources on what I already know won't last? I think we as the church, as a family, need to recalibrate the kind of metric we use for how we talk about what is most important. Here's another offering. Pray before you buy something. Pray before spending. It does a wonderful job of revealing our motives of why we want something. It helps us sift through what is actually need and what is a want. It allows us to have a clean conscience in what we buy and why we buy it. If we are impulsive or impatient with our purchasing decisions, there's a good chance we are convincing ourselves we really need something that's probably only a want. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why do I want that so bad? Praying about it gives God the chance to answer that for us. And the last would be always be generous. Always. Without exception. There doesn't seem to be any indication in Scripture that generosity gets to be qualified by whether we think we have enough to give. You don't have to think further than Jesus' example of the woman who gives the very little that she does have and praises her above and beyond the Pharisees who give far more numerically, but it's only a portion of what they do have. The willingness and readiness to give things away whether it's money or the things most precious to us, maybe that is time in some of our cases. Postures, uh, giving our stuff away, postures us to be thankful for what we do have, not bitter, jealous, envious for what we don't have. And maybe to give us a sort of outside perspective, the author Stephen King uh, says this, I found this very good. He says, I give because it is the only concrete way I have of saying that I'm glad to be alive and I can earn my daily bread doing what I love. Giving is a way of taking the focus off the money we make and putting it back where it belongs, on the lives we lead, the families we raise, the communities that nurture us. Being generous is radical to a world that demands that we are owed what we've earned. And in a lot of ways, I think generosity perplexes people's sensibilities that we're willing to give something away, that we don't see our life or our stuff as our own. And I think this is what should be commonplace for the church. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing 
the proceeds to all as any had need. We're going to take communion together. And I'm going to read for you one more thing that I think describes this table and why this is so important for us. Where money is often a pressure on our lives of never feeling like we have enough. This is what one priest says, Samuel Wells. He says, the problem is that the human imagination is simply not large enough to take in all that God is and has to give. We are overwhelmed. God's inexhaustible creation is limitless grace, relentless mercy, enduring purpose, fathomless love. It's just too much to contemplate, assimilate, understand. This is the language of abundance. And if humans turn away, it is sometimes out of a misguided but understandable sense of self-protection, a preservation of identity in the face of a tidal wave of glory. That's what stands before us here. Jesus offers himself through bread and through juice as a reminder to us that he lacks nothing and that in him is abundance. And when we come to this, we keep reorientating ourselves to say, God, I love you and you are enough. Even when before we might not have before us what we think we need, this is a continual act of trust and a way of thanksgiving to say, God, I trust that you can provide security for me far beyond anything of my own means. This is an important act of celebrating God's abundance for us.